Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. I'm joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I understand today we will be talking about religious liberty. And, and before we delve into the topic, can I just throw a quick question at you? I know that we, we have a lot we'll of... Well, anyway, so why not? Okay. There's a lot <laughs> of... program, I'm the guest. A lot of sophisticated people out there today who seem to be dedicating every bit of their work to, uh, to making religion, and particularly uh, religious influence, as, uh, as unwelcome as possible in our society. So I, I just want to pose the question to you. Why does religious liberty matter in such enlightened times as, as we live in? First answer we give to that is religious liberty matters because all liberties matter. And God has given us certain rights, and the Constitution guarantees those rights. The Constitution doesn't, gar- doesn't grant rights, only God grants rights, but the Constitution guarantees them. And anyway, so all rights matter. But I'd say religious liberty rights matter more than any other kind of rights. Because, first of all, God is the source of our liberties. And therefore, an acknowledgement of God is essential to the acknowledgement of the liberty that he has given us. Take away God. And what basis do we have for not just religious liberty, but any other kind of liberty? Jefferson recognized that, and Jefferson, in his religious beliefs, was a religious man, but probably not orthodox, at least not later in his life, but he nevertheless clearly recognizes in the Declaration of Independence that there is a higher law. He says we are entitled to our independence, right at the beginning, by the laws of nature, and our nature is God. He says the self-evident truths on which this nation is founded are, number one, that all men are created equal, not evolved equal. And number two, that we are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. In other words, he's saying that the basis for believing in human rights is that they come from the creator. Excuse me, that out, I hope. But I was at an Association of American Law Schools conference some years ago. And they have a number of sessions, and I find them intellectually stimulating, even if probably more often than not, I disagree with the direction they are coming from. But there was one session on the source of rights, and the various speakers gave all kinds of theories as to why we have rights. One, that they are just kind of inherent within us, in which case... Where did they come from? In other words, did amoebas have rights? Did dinosaurs have rights? Did apes have rights? And if not, how did rights come to apply to Homo sapiens that didn't apply to their evolutionary ancestors? We're going to say it's because man has a soul. That raises another question. Where does the soul come from? If God did not endow us with a soul, and traditionally in theology, we look to the question of how the soul came into being, and there are two views on this. One, the creationist view, and when we say creationist, uh, 
they don't mean in the sense of creation versus evolution, rather the creationist view is that God creates a new soul with the creation of every human being, perhaps at the point of conception or possibly at a later point, but at any rate, God creates a new human soul. The position that probably the majority of the church has taken through history has been what's called the tradition view, and that is that the soul is inherited from the parents, or some would say only from the father. That's how we can say that Christ does not have a sinful nature because he was virgin-born and did not have a human father. But regardless of all that, saying that rights are inherently within us certainly gives us no answer as to where they came from. Others, that it is just mutually convenient to acknowledge rights, that if I acknowledge you not steal from me, you will acknowledge my right not to have you steal from, from me and back and forth like this. In that case, all it is is a matter of convenience. And if I find it convenient for me to steal from somebody or violate somebody else's rights, why should I do? Why should I refrain from doing so? None of the explanations that they gave were sufficient. That rights are conferred by society. Okay, then if society changes its views, does that mean our rights change? That they are endowed by the government? Well, then if they're endowed by the government, then the government can take them away. If they're endowed by the Constitution, well, even the Constitution is a man-made document, and if the Constitution is our source of rights, then we can amend rights by amending the Constitution or take away rights by deleting portions of the Constitution. Point of the matter is, one thing that became apparent to me throughout this seminar is that there is no adequate basis for human rights other than to recognize that they come from a higher source than man, and what source can that be but God? Anyway, recognizing that, I think, makes religious liberty even more essential than other forms of liberty. Because if we don't have religious liberty to acknowledge God, we don't have the liberty to acknowledge the source of rights in general, and all rights are then in jeopardy. In fact, Justice Douglas once said in a dissenting opinion, but majority wouldn't have disagreed with this point, is that he said that our government is founded on the idea that there is a higher law to which human laws conform. Our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution recognize this, that man is endowed with certain rights conferred by the Creator, which government must respect. That's the recognition that rights come from a higher source, and that be the case again. Religious freedom, I think, has to be the form most of all rights. And that is perhaps the reason why when you look to the Bill of Rights, right there at the very beginning of the Bill of Rights is religious freedom. No establishment of religion. That is, you can't be forced to worship in a way contrary to what you believe and no interference with free exercise of religion. So again, for all of those reasons, that is the most essential of all rights. And the Supreme Court, I think, seems to recognize this in three decisions that the court has made in this last term. You know, for quite some time, the court has taken a rather negative view of religion, I would say. 
relegating it to the sidelines and saying that anytime we have any government involvement with religion, according to what we call the Lemon Test, Lemon versus Kurtzman, the case from I believe it's 1973, in which the Supreme Court said that you have to analyze government involvement with religion with asking three questions. We call these three questions the lemon test. Number one, is there a secular purpose for this? Has to be a secular purpose or it's not valid. Number two, is the primary or principal effect of this to advance or inhibit religion? Not saying that has to be the only effect, but has to be the primary effect. It doesn't say it can't have any effect of advancing religion. And number three, does this action involve government entanglement with religion? And if there is, I should say, excessive government entanglement with religion, and if the entanglement is such that it becomes excessive, then again, that's a basis for saying that it violates the lemon test. And in order for a government program or a government involvement with religion to pass the lemon test, three out of three is a passing score. If it fails on any one of those three points, it was struck down as unconstitutional. Well, the lemon test was criticized by many, primarily by conservatives from the very beginning. And starting in the 80s and into the 90s, the attacks on the lemon test became more and more substantial. In fact, Justice Scalia in particular was very critical of the lemon test. And there was an interesting case, Lamb's Chapel versus Center Mauritius Union Free School District in 1993. It concerned a church called Lamb's Chapel that wanted to rent a high school auditorium to show a James Dobson Focus on the Family film series. And the school district turned them down because they were a religious group. They rented out the auditorium for other purposes, but they turned it down to this group because they said that would be an establishment of religion. Came up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, we don't really think that this constitutes an establishment of religion. We note, first of all, that there is a secular purpose in making the facility available to outside organizations, and also it brings in some revenue to the school to rent it out when it's not in use for school purposes. And since you're renting it out to all sorts of organizations, the overall rental program, we don't think, has a primary effect of establishing religion. And third, they said that as far as excessive entanglement, well, the only entanglement we see is accepting the check from the church for renting it and making sure the custodian is there to open the building and make sure the air conditioner is running. We don't think that entanglement is excessive, so we don't see a problem. And so they said this is to be allowed. But Scalia said, I agree, we should allow Lamb's Chapel to rent this facility, but we should also go much further than this and overrule that stupid lemon test from the very beginning. And essentially what he says, and I'm going to read this for you here, because it demonstrates that Supreme Court justices sometimes have a sense of humor, and sometimes they can display their best wisdom in an incisive way 
by writing with humor. And so Scalia said, in this concurring opinion, like some ghoul in a late-night horror movie that repeatedly sits up in its grave and shovels abroad after being repeatedly killed and buried, Lemon stalks our establishment clause jurisprudence once again, frightening the little children and school attorneys of Center British's Union Free School District. His most burial, to be sure, was not fully six feet under. Our decision in Lee versus Weissmann conspicuously avoided using the supposed test, but also declined the invitation to repudiate it. Over the years, however, no fewer than five of the currently sitting justices have, in their own opinions, personally driven pencils through the creature's heart. The secret of the lamentous survival, I think, is that it is so easy to kill. It is there to scare us and our audience when we wish it to do so, but we can command it to return to its tomb at will. When we wish to strike down a practice it forbids, we invoke it. When we wish to uphold a practice it forbids, we ignore it entirely. Such a, or sometimes we take a middle course, calling its three prongs no more than helpful signposts. Such a docile and useful monster is worth keeping around, at least in a somnolent state, one never knows when one might need it. Well, you can see the humor in there, but what he is saying <laughs> is essentially correct. Many of the justices had wanted to overrule Lemon time and time again, but never had the concurrence of five justices to do so. But the majority opinion always has the last word, and in a footnote, they make a reference to Scalia's opinion, and they say, while we are somewhat intrigued by Justice Scalia's evening at the cinema, we return to our, the reality that there is a proper way to inter an established decision. And Lemon, however frightening it might be to some, has not been overruled. Well, that was the state of things in 1993. Has Lemon been overruled today? Until this term of the Supreme Court, I would have had to say, no, it has not been overruled. It's been limited, but not overruled. But with the three decisions the Supreme Court has issued this year, I'm a little closer to saying Lemon has virtually been overruled. So let's look at these three decisions. And I might tell you the Foundation for Moral Law, where I served as senior counsel, filed an amicus brief in each of these cases. First of these was Shurtleff, that's S-H-U-R-T-L-E-F-F, -F, he was a pastor, versus City of Boston. Now in this case, Shurtleff's church was holding an activity in the city park, and they wanted to fly their church flag on the church flagpole, or rather on the city's flagpole. And the city said, no, that would be an establishment of religion. You cannot fly your flag on that flagpole. And that would sound like maybe a quintessential establishment of religion. When you think about a church flag flying on a city flagpole, except when you remember that the city regularly allowed other organizations to fly their flags from that flagpole when they were holding activities in the park. And in fact, the city had granted permission to over 300 organizations, including 
gray, gay pride groups and so on to fly their flags. And this is the first time on record that the city ever refused any organization the right to fly its flag. That makes it sound more like discrimination against religion. Anyway, so the case went up to the US Supreme Court and the city argued that there is such a thing as government speech. For example, when the government sets up a historical marker somewhere, that is what we call government speech. Or when the state prepares flagpole, or rather license plates for cars, that is government speech. And even if you pick a particular message on your license plate, that is still sufficiently identified with the government that we call that government speech. And so they said, what goes up on the city flagpole is government speech. Well, I thought that Shirtliff was probably going to win his case. And he did. I did not anticipate that he'd win it at a 9-0 decision that even the three liberal justices joined and that even Justice Breyer who was a liberal justice, although not as radical as Justice Sotomayor, that he wrote the opinion. First of all, he said, this is not government speech. And the reason primarily he said this is the city doesn't monitor it. If they monitored very carefully what flags were flown, if they had some clear guidelines as to what flag could and what flag could not be flown from that flagpole, it might be government speech. If it was flying there for a long period of time, that might be government speech. If the city were to actually raise the flag, maybe it was government speech. But in this case, the city had no criteria that they used. They simply turned this down as an arbitrary thing because it was religious, and in fact, specifically because it had a cross. Secondly, the city had no policy of scrutinizing flag, flags that were going to be flown. They just routinely granted them, except for this one. Thirdly, the city didn't raise the flag. The people who were conducting the event did. And fourthly, the flag was not up there for a long period of time. It would be up there during the duration of that organization's event, which normally was less than a day. So they said, this is not government speech. And therefore, since it's not government speech, you cannot engage in what we call content or viewpoint discrimination. In other words, you, you're going to allow flags to be flown on that flagpole. You have to allow other flags and religious flags as well. You can't say we're going to allow some and not others. And especially, you can't just single out one type of flag, a religious flag, and say that flag may not be allowed and others may. And so they said, since it's not an establishment of religion issue, because it's not government speech, it involves free exercise of religion, and primarily it involves free speech issues. Free speech and free exercise of religion are very closely intertwined together in the Supreme Court decisions. And that being the case, 
They said this violates the free speech and free exercise rights of Pastor Shirtliff and his church. And so they said the flag has to be allowed. And I am told that since this time, the city now has allowed the flag of this church to be flown from that flagpole. Anyway, so that's the first case. Now, when I saw the result of that, saying that this is not government speech, clearly this means the government is giving a much more limited interpretation to what government speech is. And that gave me considerable confidence for the third case, the, the Kennedy versus Bremerton case. But before we talk about that one, let's talk about another free exercise case, Carson versus Macon. And again, when Carson versus Macon came before the court, here we see where free exercise, free speech, and establishment clause interests all kind of overlap with one another and are involved with one another. And so as we look to Carson versus Macon, this is a case out of the state of Maine. And Maine, you know, has a lot of wilderness area. We don't think of the East as being wilderness area, but a lot of Northern Maine is wilderness. And it just is not economically feasible to build school buildings in that, those areas. And so the state had a policy that by state law, if people choose to send their children to private schools, the state will provide the funding for them to do so. It saved the money to have to construct a public school in the area. However, the policy only applied to parents who wanted to send their children to secular private schools. If you want to send your children to a religious private school, you have to do that at your own expense. They're not covered. And so we had a couple of families, the Nelson family and the Carson family, who said that this violates our free speech rights and our free exercise religion rights to say that we can't send our children to a private school at government expense when you're letting everybody else do so at government expense. You are discriminating against us. And so they filed a lawsuit and the case went up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Again, the Foundation for Moral Law filed an amicus brief in support of the Carsons, the family in this case. The state said, problem is, if we were to fund religious schools, that would be an establishment of religion. That would mean government is aiding religion, giving government money that would go to church-related schools. That's an establishment violation, so we can't do this. And case went up to the Supreme Court, but in order to see how they decided it, we need to look at the case Espinosa versus Montana decided a couple of years ago. We'll do that after the break. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 
We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, as we went to break, I believe uh, next up you were going to uh, give us some of the background on Espinoza versus Montana. That's right. We're talking about Carson versus Maine, this case from Maine, in which you had the issue as to whether government funding of parents who want to send their children to private religious schools is an establishment clause violation. But in order to understand this case, we need to look at a case that appears almost identical, and that is Espinoza versus Montana, decided by the Supreme Court just a couple of years ago. In Espinoza, again, the state of Montana had a policy that we will provide aid to parents who want to send their children to private schools, but they have to be secular private schools. If they are religious private schools, then we will not fund them. And the Supreme Court, in this case, ruled in favor of Mrs. Espinoza, the mother who wanted to send her children to a private religious school, saying that you don't have to send your, the state doesn't have to aid anybody. They don't have to give any aid to any private schools. But if they're going to aid some private schools, they can't discriminate against religious private schools. Well, that has seemed to answer the question in Carson versus Macon, except for one thing. There was a footnote in the case, footnote number three in Espinoza, in which the Supreme Court said, we are only considering here whether or not the school in question is church-affiliated. And the state may not discriminate against a school simply because it has an affiliation with a church. We are not here considering whether they can discriminate against a school because it teaches overtly religious content. And that was the distinction that the state of Maine hung its hat on a couple years later here in Carson versus Macon. They said, oh, we are totally different from Montana. See, in Montana, they just said, if you are a Catholic school affiliated with a Catholic church or an Episcopal church or something, we can't fund you. We're not going to refuse to fund somebody just because the school is affiliated with a church. Whether we're going to look to whether or not they are advancing religion by teaching a religious curriculum. And you could be advancing religion, teaching a religious curriculum, even if you weren't affiliated with the church, or you could be affiliated with the church, but teaching a basically secular curriculum, just like the public schools are, in which case my question is, why bother having a Christian school in that case? But at any rate, so they said that is the distinction. Now, in our brief to the Supreme Court, we noted what the court had said about there can be no excessive entanglement of government with religion. And we said, if you're going to make the distinction based on the extent to which they integrate Christianity with their curriculum, you are engaging in excessive entanglement of the worst possible kind. You were going to have to scrutinize the curriculum, the texts, the teacher's manuals, the lesson plans, and everything to see how that is done. You're probably going to have to go into the schools themselves and actually observe how the teachers are teaching. You're going to have to gauge it from the standpoint of the students and see what they are observing and what their parents are hearing back from these programs and so on. 
That is the worst possible excessive entanglement we can imagine. And that is exactly what the First Amendment is supposed to prevent. Well, the case went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Carsons, the religious family here. They did so in a six to three decision. You three liberal justices, Justice Breyer and Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan dissented. But six justices agreed that this did not violate the establishment clause, and Chief Justice Roberts possibly the most moderate of the conservative bloc, Chief Justice Roberts wrote the decision. A couple of things that he noted. First of all, he noted, like we said, that this would involve scrutinizing curriculum and so on, and that would raise entanglement problems if the school is going to, or the state is going to follow this policy. Secondly, he responded very sharply against what the dissent had suggested, the dissent is saying, we are forcing, that the court is forcing the state of Maine to fund religious schools. And Justice Roberts said, absolutely, that is incorrect. They don't have to fund any schools at all if they don't want to. Or if they want to fund only public schools and no private schools at all, they can do that. They don't have to fund private schools at all. All we are saying is that if they are going to fund private schools, they cannot discriminate against religious schools. Now, this principle has been around for quite a while. Way back in the 1980s, we had a case, Vincent versus Widmark, involving a religious group called Cornerstone at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, that was denied the right to meet on campus because they were a religious organization. And the Supreme Court in that case ruled that, well, the school doesn't have to allow any groups to meet. If they're gonna allow student groups to meet on campus, they cannot discriminate against a religious group. And they ruled that primarily on free speech, but partially on free exercise as well. Bergens versus Westside Community School District applied the same principle to public high schools as far as student-led and student-initiated extracurricular organizations meeting on campus. Rosenberger versus Rector involved the funding of a religious publication, saying that if you're going to fund religious groups, you can't discriminate in your funding against a religious group or against a student group that is religious. On and on, the court has said this in Trinity Lutheran Church, the court said that if you're going to fund building playgrounds on school campuses, that you can't discriminate against a school simply because that school is run by a church. Now we just had the same principle in Espinoza a couple of years ago. And we're simply saying it again here. You cannot discriminate against religion. I don't know how long it is going to take for school officials to finally get it through their heads, and sometimes lower courts to finally get it through their heads. You can't discriminate against religion. The court has been saying this consistently for a couple of decades, 
and hopefully with Carson versus Macon, they'll finally get it through their heads. But then we have the case of Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, case out of the state of Washington. Kennedy had served almost 20 years as a Marine and left the Marine Corps to become a football coach for a public high school. And there at the football games, Coach Kennedy followed a practice that at the close of the game, he would walk out onto the 50-yard line of the football field, and he would kneel and pray. At first, he did this on his own, and then students would occasionally ask, could we join you in this prayer? And he'd say, it's a free country. You can do what you want. And so some of his players would join him. Then sometimes players from the opposing team would come out and join in prayer, and people from the audience as well. And this went on until 2015, when even though they had never received a complaint about this, the school district decided that this was a violation of the establishment clause that constituted an establishment of religion, a violation of separation of church and state, and that Coach Kennedy had to stop doing this. And very specifically, they told Coach Kennedy that you are free, if you wish, to go out on the field there and give a pep talk or tell jokes or do other things like this, but you are prohibited from engaging in any kind of religious message when you're out there, as they put it instructed Mr. Kennedy to avoid any motivational talks with students that included religious expression, including prayer, and to avoid suggesting, encouraging, or discouraging, or supervising any prayers of students, which students remain free to engage in. Anyway, so Coach Kennedy simply said, I have to follow my conscience. I cannot do that. I, my God tells me that I am to pray. And I must obey God rather than men, quoting from Acts 5.29. And so, because he insisted on continuing with that prayer, he was fired. Case went up to the United States Supreme Court, and we made many of the same arguments in our amicus brief there that we had made in the Sherliff case before, that this was not government speech and that it was clearly discriminating against religious expression. And this time, the Supreme Court ruled six to three in favor of Coach Kennedy. Justice Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion of the case. And in that majority opinion, he was very explicit in saying that This was discrimination against religion. It was private expression. It did not constitute government speech. That's part of what the school district is trying to argue is when a coach is saying something, whatever a coach says is attributed to the government. And so if he is saying something, that's like the school speaking. And since the school cannot endorse religion, the coach can't endorse religion either. 
when the court had released its opinion just a few weeks earlier in Shirtliff, and they said putting a flag on a flagpole is not government speech, I was pretty sure they were going to say the same thing in regard to Coach Kennedy's prayer. And so I was very optimistic, and my optimism was not disappointed at all. But way, way back in the 1960s, the Supreme Court had said in regard to some students who wore black armbands protesting the Vietnam War and did so partially for religious reasons. And at that time, the school district took the position that anything said in the school, we have a right to regulate. And the Supreme Court simply said, neither students nor teachers shed their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gate. Meaning that those students had a First Amendment right to wear those armbands. Now, if the state could show that this was disruptive among the students, it was causing fights or disciplinary problems and so on, that might be a basis for regulating it, but there was no showing like that. And so the court said, this has to be allowed. Anyway, so that case clearly says that what a teacher says is not necessarily going to be considered government speech. And if that's going to be true of a teacher in the schoolhouse and even in the school classroom, it would have to be also true of a coach during an athletic event that attendance and participation is not mandatory. And even after the event is over, when he goes out on the field at the close of the event to, to pray. In fact, Justice Gorsuch emphasizes that quite strongly, that this is private activity and that it's not part of the game, that during this particular period of time, once the game is over, coaches are free to attend to personal affairs or do whatever they want. And that being the case, he said, you can't really attribute this to being government speech. But possibly one of the biggest points he makes here is the need for respect. And as far as respecting other people's opinions, well, he makes the point very well that respect for religious expression is indispensable to life in a free and diverse republic, whether those expressions take place in a sanctuary or on a field, and whether they manifest through the spoken word or a bowed head. Here, a government entity sought to punish an individual for engaging in a brief, quiet, personal, religious observance, doubly protected by the free exercise and free speech clauses of the First Amendment. And the Justice Gorsuch, the majority, is clearly saying this is protected First Amendment activity. On other occasions throughout the opinion, Justice Gorsuch emphasizes that, you know, we talk about respect for different opinions. Well, we need to teach people that they have a duty to show some respect for Coach Kennedy's opinion, for Coach Kennedy's practice. And to say that we need to respect all religious viewpoints except the Christian viewpoint and all forms of expression except for prayer, well, Coach, rather, Justice Gorsuch is saying that is simply wrong. 
And part of what he says is his schools are supposed to be teaching tolerance, we say. Is this not intolerance? Naturally, he says, Mr. Kennedy's proposal would pray quietly by himself on the field would have meant some people would have seen his religious exercise. Those close at hand might have heard him too. But learning how to tolerate speech or prayer of all kinds is part of learning how to live in a pluralistic society, a trait of character essential to a tolerant citizenry. This court has long recognized as well that secondary students are mature enough to understand that the school does not endorse, let alone coerce them to participate in speech that it merely permits on a non-discriminatory basis. Anyway, putting all that together, Justice Kennedy ruled in favor of, I'm sorry, Justice Gorsuch ruled in favor of Coach Kennedy. And I think it's a major victory for religious liberty here. And one of the real questions though is, does this case have the effect of overruling that opinion that many of us have been critical of for quite some time, Lemon versus Kurtzman? And Justice Sotomayor, who I guess I just have to say that Justice Sotomayor sometimes overreacts in what she says and sometimes is not that precise, but she, in her dissenting opinion, joined by Justice Breyer and Justice Kagan, she says, today's go decision goes beyond merely misreading the record. The court overrules Lemon versus Kurtzman and calls into question decades of subsequent precedents that it deems offshoots of that decision. And she goes on to say on page 28 of her dissenting opinion that the court now goes much further, overruling Lemon entirely and in all contexts. Is that really what the court did in this case? Well, I'm not sure they did. Frankly, I wish they would, but I'm not sure they actually did in this case. They don't expressly say they are overruling Lemon versus Kurtzman. Rather, what the court does say, what Justice Gorsuch does say in his opinion, is that in place of Lemon and the endorsement test, this court has instructed that the establishment clause must be interpreted by reference to historical practices and understandings. In a footnote right above that, he goes on to cite the numerous cases in which the court has been critical of the Lemon Test or has decided cases ignoring the Lemon Test. But nowhere that I can read specifically in Justice Gorsuch's opinion does he expressly say that Lemon versus Kurtzman is overruled. He say that in place of it, we need to look to historical practices and understandings. This is a reference back to another case, Marsh versus Chambers, in which the Supreme Court considered the question of a chaplain who was hired by the Nebraska State Legislature. He was hired and paid by the taxpayers. His role was to open every legislative session, every day of every legislative session in prayer, and also to be available to council legislators when they wanted pastoral council. And by a 5-4 margin, the Supreme Court said that 
That was not an establishment of religion that was permissible. And they did so by looking to historical precedent. What the court said in that case is, we go back to the colonial legislatures, they employed chaplains, the Continental Congress employed chaplains. In fact, the Congress of 1789, the very same Congress that adopted the First Amendment, also adopted a resolution calling for the establishment of congressional chaplains. So this is a practice that precedes the First Amendment itself, and nothing in the language of the First Amendment indicates any intention to change that practice. So the practice is recognized, sanctioned, and grandfathered in. And the court is saying here, the Establishment Clause must be interpreted by reference to historical practices and understandings, which would seem to take us back to that principle of Marsh versus Chambers. They cite also another precedent there, the town of Greece. Town of Greece was a, that's a town in New York, town named Greece, that had a practice of opening their town board meetings with prayers by pastors that they would call in from the community. And the Supreme Court 5-4 said that was not an establishment of religion. Likewise, the American Legion versus American Humanist Association case, in which the Supreme Court ruled, I believe that was a 6-3 to decision, that having a large cross at a highway intersection in honor of those who had died in World War I was not an establishment of religion. And in both cases, they looked to the historical practice of opening public meetings in prayer or erecting crosses to commemorate the dead and military purposes to honor sacrifice and the like. And so in both of those cases, they looked to past practice as saying that this is sanctioned. Now, you can't really look to football games exactly because there weren't football games at the time the First Amendment was adopted. However, you can certainly see at that time and long before that prayer was common at public events. I can only say that this case may not totally overrule Lemon versus Kurtz. However, it certainly limits Lemon much further. It may well be that the court might trot out Lemon versus Kurtzman and use it again, especially in a kind of case where we're talking about government aid to a private school or something like this. But certainly, Lemon's future, based on this case, is very limited. Now, the question of what we see here, just like the question of what we see with Dobbs versus Jackson, the abortion decision that was decided several weeks ago in which they overruled Roe versus Wade, are these decisions going to stand? Or as soon as there is a liberal majority on the court once again, are these decisions going to be overturned and Roe versus Wade be resurrected or Lemon be resurrected? Well, time will only tell on that. I can only say that the court has some respect for past precedent. And my hope is that by relegating Lemon to kind of like a footnote in legal history and 
limiting this application to only a few cases, the court will be much more willing to grant religion its proper role in the public realm. Not that we want an established state church, of course not, but we don't want a public arena that is entirely religion-free as well. Hopefully we're moving in that direction.